0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John and find chapter 17. We'll be looking at the entire chapter as an introduction to John 17 this morning. Uh, As I did a couple of weeks ago, I'm uh, sort of forcing your hand, such as it were. We're going to take four looks at John 17, but we're only going to take two weeks to do it. So if you want to hear parts two and four, you have to come back at night. Uh, and I'm not saying they're the most important parts, but you won't know if you don't come back. <laughs> now, in the in the 9 a.m. service, I realized that my introduction uh, sort of exposed one of the nerdier aspects of my character. I know right now Glenn Smith is hoping that I'm going to confess love for Star Wars, which I'm not going to do this morning. But... Uh, I I do want to encourage you, the rest of you, um, if I can use the term bookish people out there, uh, that you're not alone. And you'll understand what I mean here in just a couple minutes. John 17, this is the Lord's Prayer. It's not the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, which we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, but this is Jesus' prayer for you. Take heed how you hear. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us." So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. May be in them and I in them. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Well, we're fast approaching the beginning of the new school year. I expected some response to that. We're I know obviously not all of you are as excited as I am about that, and I don't mean to imply that I'm excited that my children are getting ready to start school again. I'm excited because I just started school again, and I love school. Now, uh, I love the scrutiny of examination. I love the opportunity to learn and to distill information into my brain and down into my heart. I love studying God's Word and His works. But one of the aspects of the beginning of a school year that most appeals to me is getting a new syllabus. I've just uh, erected a wall between me and about half the congregation, haven't I? Um, I love a new syllabus. Uh, It tells you all sorts of wonderful information, doesn't it? It tells you what books you're going to read. It tells you what The structure of the course is going to look like. It gives you a list of all your assignments, all the papers you get to write. Kids, you guys are with me, right? All the papers you get to write and all of the projects and examinations you get to take. But one of the most important parts of a syllabus, one of them, in fact, I might suggest that it's the most important part of a syllabus, is what's referred to as the learning objectives. The learning objectives, which are usually just bulleted uh, in form on a syllabus, tell you what your teacher expects for you to glean from this course. And it gives you a target, doesn't it? Or multiple targets, but it gives you a target to aim at. So as you're doing your reading, as you're contemplating your writing, as you're listening to lectures, you're filtering all of that information through these learning objectives. And there, they are there to help focus your attention. I'll give you an example. I'm taking a class right now, and this is a verbatim uh, uh, learning objective from this course. To appreciate the implications of covenantal apologetics for pastoral ministry. Now, that last bit for pastoral ministry, that's the target. It's not just learn what apologetics are, learn what the biblical impetus for apologetics is, learn what covenantal apologetics are as a, as a sort of category of apologetics. It's how do they matter in pastoral ministry? So as I'm listening to lectures, as I'm thinking and reading and studying and preparing to write, it's all oriented toward the goal of covenantal apologetics in preaching and in discipleship and in counseling and in shepherding and in evangelizing and so on and so forth. It's under the banner of pastoral ministry. That's the target, right? Learning objectives give you that in school. And John 17, if I can say it this way is our heavenly teacher's syllabus for the Christian life. It tells us what Jesus' objectives for you are in this Christian life. It's what he desires for his people to be and to do. That's what John 17 serves as. Christ, in his great prayer to the Father, shows us plainly what he wants us to know about him, about each other, and about eternity. Multiple other things, of course. Uh, Anthony Burgess, 16th century Puritan pastor and theologian, preached 145 sermons on John 17. I'm not, I, I haven't done the math. I think that's one per word, uh, we're not going to go into that much detail, uh, but we do want to look at, uh, at sort of the wave tops of the syllabus here, if I can continue the analogy, uh, of what John 17 says to us as Christians is Christ's desire for us, Christ's desire for us. So this morning, I want you to be asking yourself this question. Here's the, here's the takeaway question for each of us as we listen to God's Word and Christ's words to us or at least in our hearing. Am I living my life in such a way that it fights against Jesus' prayer for me? Am I living my life in such a way that it effectively is fighting back against Jesus' prayer for me in John 17? That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? It's kind of frightening to know that you and I have in us the capacity to live, to think, to act, to desire in such a way that it's if our lives, if our lives could pray, they might say, Heavenly Father, don't answer Jesus' prayer for me. That's a little disturbing, isn't it? So I want us to be asking the question, am I living my life in a way that fights against Jesus' prayer for me or submits to his will for me? I shudder to think how often my own life silently wars against Christ's will for me, and I wonder if that's true for you as well. Well, this morning, we're going to focus on three particular things or desires or objectives, learning uh, objectives, which Jesus prays for on behalf of His people. I'll give those to you now so you can uh, be following along as we move through the text. Number one, Jesus prays for our preservation. Uh, I'm sure you heard it repeated that we would be kept by God. Jesus prays for our preservation. Number two, he prays for our sanctification, that we would be set apart for God. When you heard that in verse 17, which we'll look at uh, in the middle of the sermon. And then finally, Jesus prays for our glorification, doesn't he? That we would be with God forever. Uh, that final uh, event where we transition from this life into the next and spend eternity with Christ in heaven. Now, keep in mind that this uh, prayer was offered by Jesus on the night that He was betrayed, on the eve of His crucifixion, within hours of dying on the cross. And Jesus' prayer is for you to be kept, set apart, and glorified in Christ Jesus. What love he must have what selfless love christ must have to think of us in his final hours well the first thing we see here and really we're focusing our attention on verses 11 and 12 and then verse 15 is jesus prayer for our preservation you see the word kept or or uh, variations of that word four times here he says i am no longer in the world speaking of his immediate departure Um, And in fact, interesting that Jim mentioned Transfiguration Sunday. If you recall in the gospel accounts, uh, especially in Luke's gospel account of the transfiguration, Jesus uh, is on the mountain with three of his disciples, and Moses and Elijah arrive, and in that transfiguration moment, they are speaking with Jesus about his departure soon to happen in Jerusalem. Now, just a freebie and aside here, what they actually say is they're talking about his upcoming exodus, which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Interesting choice of words, isn't it? Uh, But anyway, here we are in, in John 17, and Jesus is referring to this immediate departure. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, he says, keep them in your name which you have given me. While I was with them, I kept them And then he goes on to say, I guarded them, different words, same idea, like a shepherd protecting his sheep, and not one of them is lost except for Judas. And then in verse 15, he says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, uh, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, this word keep that's used here certainly has the flavor of shepherding, protecting, watching over in sort of a generic sense. Uh, You you might say... um, like a, like a security guard protecting a piece of property, a, a, a facility. There's a guardianship that Christ had over his disciples, and that he's asking God, implication through the Spirit, to have over them at his departure. But there's a little bit stronger sense here than simple guardianship, than simply protecting in fact, the idea behind these words, keep here, it carries the sense of a warden watching over his prisoners. Now, that might be a little off-putting. We don't like the idea of being someone's prisoner or God being our warden in heaven. And so, the, you know, the illustration breaks down a little bit, but, but ultimately what's being said is we are being kept, Jesus is praying for our preservation in such a way that we can't even escape it. It's not just sheep in a pen with a good shepherd who makes sure they're fed. It's prisoners in a cell and the door is locked and there is no way you can get out because the warden has the keys. Jesus is praying for our preservation to such a degree that there's no way you and I can escape from God's protective grip on our lives. Think of Jesus' words in John 10. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Indeed, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and my Father is greater than all. You and I are held in the two closed hands of the Father and the Son, which are bound together by the Spirit, and no one can take us out of His hand. No thing can take us out of His hand. Even as was prayed in the pastoral prayer, we're we're convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's almost Jesus' reminder to His disciples as they're listening that we should keep praying that we would be delivered from evil and kept from temptation. There's a similar uh, feeling here with the the so-called Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Now, as the disciples are listening to this amazing prayer of Jesus in the first couple of verses, He talks about His own pre-incarnate glory, which we'll look at this evening, uh, they hear Him praying this, and I wonder what sort of things come to their minds. I wonder if the disciples' minds go back to that evening on the sea, when the storm rose up and the boat was being swamped and these seafaring men were so afraid they thought they might perish and there's jesus sleeping in the boat and they go up to him and say jesus don't you care that we're going to die do something and jesus wakes up and says that's enough and all of creation becomes silent before him he stops the wind and the waves and he keeps his disciples safe i wonder if it's worth our making the connection that when jesus prays that god would keep us he wants us to remember that not only can he do it look at his power but he wants to do it it's god's will to preserve his people He's predestined us since before the foundation of the world for adoption as sons and daughters. I'm convinced that nothing above or below in life or death can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ's coming. There is no better reminder in the midst of life's difficulties that not only can God keep you, Not only does Jesus desire for God to keep you, but his will is to keep you kept in Christ. Do you know that that's true? Do you know that your life, body and soul, and life and in death belongs not to yourself, but to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? And when he had 26 verses to pray right before he was betrayed, He chose to ask the Father and remind his followers, you and me, that his will is that we can never be lost. We can never be lost. Whatever sin you're struggling with or trial you're facing, be reminded Christ's objective for you is your preservation. And when Jesus prays, the Father listens. If God is so benevolent and merciful to incline His ear to hear the prayers, the lisping prayers of sinners like you and me, how much more inclined must He be to hear the perfect prayer of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ? When Jesus prays according to the Father's will and He says, Father, keep them as I have kept them, you can take that prayer to the bank. It doesn't matter what you're going through or what you've gone through, who you are or who you used to be, Christ's prayer for you in life and in death is that you will never be snatched out of his Father's hand. Never. What good news. What a wonderful prayer. I often think how foolish my prayers are over the dinner table, around my children's bed, or even as I'm sitting in my study on my knees and praying. How silly the sort of things I ask for when I know that Jesus has already prayed for my eternal preservation and yours. Isn't that good news? We must remember, of course, that Jesus doesn't pray for riches. He doesn't pray that his disciples would experience honor in this life, that they'd have immense worldly influence, that their platform would expand, that their vocations would be successful, that their... uh, clothes would be sharply pressed and cleaned uh, that their health would be increasingly better and better the longer they walk faithfully with the lord jesus christ and said he prays for their souls now that might be a little disappointing to some of you especially in the midst of trial and in the midst of aging i remember hearing one person say and i i think this is pretty accurate he said it's not getting older that bothers me it's aging and if you're aging you know what that means and sometimes we're in the midst of difficulties. We think, if only Jesus would heal me. I wish that's what he really meant. And sometimes he does. That's not what he's praying for here, is it? If only Jesus would put a couple more zeros in my bank account. Oh, I'd be able to worship more faithfully, tithe more. Life would be a little easier. If only he'd fix this relationship that I, I'm struggling in, or this battle I'm having with fear and anxiety or worry or uh, the struggles that I go through. I wish that he would just fix those things now. as if Jesus were a McDonald's drive-thru employee, just ready to give us out physical hamburgers whenever we get hungry, do we remember that his principal concern is for your soul? that he came to die. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about your body. Please don't uh, make the mistake of concluding that. Even in the glorification prayer, it's a promise that we're going to receive new bodies, perfect ones that will never perish. Sin and sickness and all these other things are going to be gone forever. And so don't ignore that reality. But in this life now, as the church militant, as those who are fighting the battle against spiritual forces, Christ's prayers that you and I would be preserved in our souls for heaven. And so we need to set our minds on things that are above, as Paul says in Colossians 1, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, for that's where where we are also, to store up treasure for ourselves in heaven, where these things don't corrupt. And so I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' prayer is principally for future health. Indeed, we know that all but one of the men standing around here listening to this prayer were martyred. That couldn't have been his point. But his point is this no matter what fiery trial you go through between this moment and the last moment of your life, Christ is keeping your soul unto eternity. And that's a comfort for us, isn't it? Well, Christ's second stated desire for us is our sanctification, our being set apart from the world and its ways. In fact, it's connected to the first because one of the ways that we're kept in the world is to be set apart from it by the truth. Uh, Verse 17, one of the more well-known verses in John's gospel, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, what does Jesus mean by sanctify? In fact, if if you look at this, and we'll look at this in more detail next Sunday, he says, sanctify them you sent me in the world, I sent them. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So there's a lot going on there. But most basically, what Jesus is praying for in John 17, 17, is that we would be set apart. Set apart. Now, the idea of holiness is certainly incorporated there. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, speaking of this verse, more holiness is the very thing to be desired for all servants of Christ. In fact, Scripture tells us elsewhere. We think of passages like 1 Peter 1 verse 16, where Peter tells the church to be holy for the Lord our God is holy. And so that certainly uh, there's a moral aspect of holiness where we live pure lives, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about being set apart. So here's an illustration that I may use. Uh, It's not great, but here it is because this pen's here. This is a pen. It's a normal pen. It's a Christ Covenant Church pen. It actually doesn't work. But if um, uh, this pen is one of many pens, and imagine that I had many pens lined up over here on this side of the pulpit, and I use them for journaling, I use them for underlining in books, I use them for scribbling notes, I use them to throw at people, I use them for uh, all sorts of tasks, all sorts of uh, uh, usages, and. God said, this pen here, I want you to only use for signing your signature. That's it. Nothing else. I don't want you to do it. Don't throw it at anybody. Don't underline with it. Don't doodle with it. Don't journal with it. Only use it to sign your signature. I take this pen out of the pile of common pens and put it over here. And it's now only for the purpose for which it's been put apart, for which it's been separated, for which it's been sanctified. Christ is praying for you and for me that we would live our lives like this from the world. We're all people. We're all made in God's image, including all of the worldlings outside of these doors, and perhaps some of you are in here right now who don't know and love Christ. We're all the same, essentially, as those made in God's image. Men and women, boys and girls, we're all human And God has said, through His Son, Jesus Christ, that He came into the world to save people and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness, from common usage, into the kingdom of His beloved Son for holy usage, to be used for God's will and purposes. And the examples are numerous. We could think about our money. I have money, and my non-Christian neighbor has money. But how I think about money and spend money and give money and care about money is sanctified because of what God says about coveting and about uh, 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 storing up treasures on earth and about being a charitable giver and so forth. I've been made and you all have been made, my neighbors have been made as sexual beings. It's how we use our sexuality and the intimacy of our marriage bed and those sorts of things in a way that glorifies God, that's set apart for His purposes for sex in marriage, rather than an unholy way, which is how our non-Christian friends, and indeed many Christian people, use their bodies in a common and a profane way. And so being sanctified in truth doesn't mean that we stop doing the things that everybody in the world does. Perhaps you grew up in a a church environment that said, um, don't play cards, don't go to movies, don't dance, um, you know, and and so on and so forth, because those are the sort of things that the world does. And so sanctify means stop doing worldly things. No, no, no. It means stop doing things that everybody else does in a worldly way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God, right? It doesn't say stop eating and drinking because that's what all those pagans do. They do, but Paul doesn't say stop doing the things that the world does. He says stop doing the things the world does the way the world does them. It's a heart posture, isn't it? It's about glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, Being set apart by the truth means reading God's word and understanding that all things are permissible, not all things are profitable, but all things are permissible and every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And we can enjoy the life that God has given us in a way that brings glory to him rather than self-exaltation or in fact perversion of the good gifts that God gives us. And he says there's one way to find out what that is and that's the word of God sanctify them in the truth. Well, what's truth, Jesus, you might ask? God's Word is truth. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism in question three asks the question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? It's a twofold answer. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. How do we think rightly about God and all things? And then number two, what duty God requires of man. How do we live our lives in light of that reality of who God is? And so as people of the word, Christ's prayer is that you and I would immerse ourselves so in God's word that we wouldn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But our delight would be in the law of the Lord and on it we would meditate day and night. And we'd become trees planted by streams of water that yields our fruit in season and our leaves would not wither. And in all that we would do for the kingdom and glory of God, we would prosper. Do you see how that works? Jesus' prayer is simply that you and I would become Psalm 1 Christians. That we would know who God is, love God's word, and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with which we've been called. Not like the world, but like Christ. Don't make the mistake of applying a sort of legalistic framework to this idea that what we need to do is kind of come together for our holy huddle on Sunday and separate ourselves from everything out there. And then, uh, you know, we just let the world go to hell in a handbasket because they're already on their way. And we ignore the world around us and we don't enjoy the good gifts of God's common grace given to all mankind. Instead, we should be the sort of Christians who understand that Jesus wants us to glorify God in our eating and drinking. In our marriage beds, in our enjoyment of the of the place in which he's put us, and all things good and beautiful and true that God has given to all mankind, but we filter those things through the truth of his word. We filter those things through the truth of God's word. Martin Luther said that Christianity should be a profane faith. The word profane literally means outside the temple. Luther meant that the church is not to spend all of its time so gathered together basking in God's glory that it never goes outside of its doors to be Christianity out in the world. Jesus says repeatedly, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them kept in it, that we'd know how to live in a way that glorifies God. Christian, that's Jesus' prayer for you, that you would enjoy life in Christ according to the truth, not according to the flesh. And That's his will for you. That's one of Jesus' last few prayers for his people, is that we be set apart from the world, not to frozen chosen sort of, you know, Christian stoicism bored out of our skulls because there's nothing to enjoy till we get to heaven, but loving the life that God has given us according to his word in a way that glorifies him. How freeing then to enjoy all the things that God has made for us in a way that brings glory to God in heaven. So I ask you as we look to move to our last point here, do you consider life according to God's word? Do you think about all the things that he has given you in light of what he says about himself and about you as one of his people. I encourage you, as I do as often as I'm able, to be people of the Word, to meditate on God's Word day and night, to return to our opening illustration, this is God's syllabus for us. And it gives us all the learning objectives and goals that we're expected to know and the life that we're called to live in a way that glorifies him. Again, I think Jim prayed this in his pastoral prayer, for the good works which he has prepared beforehand that we might do them, from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Well, finally, um, Jesus prays in verse 24 for our glorification. Now, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, this may be, verse 24, the single most comforting sentence... Jesus speaks in Scripture. Now, Jesus said many things. In fact, uh, if if all of them were written down, the world couldn't contain the books which would be written about Jesus' words and deeds. And he said a lot of things that are recorded for us in Scripture, and John's Gospel, in particular, offers quite a few comforting reminders of Jesus and his love for us. But this one's at the top of my list. Uh, The great reformer John Knox had John chapter 17 read to him every day for the last weeks of his life as he was battling his final illness. And one can imagine that every time they got to verse 24, he'd say, read that one again. Read that one again. Christian, if you're struggling right now, and if you're not, listen to this. Father, I desire, that's not like want, like I want cake after church this morning. That's not what I mean. It's not a hopeful wish. This is Christ's determined will for you. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you realize that the very last prayer Jesus prays for you and for me and for all his people is that we'll be brought safely home to heaven? Someone once said that every time we go to a Christian funeral, it's a reminder that God is answering Jesus' prayer in John 17, 24. The way for us To be with Him in glory is through the ground. That ought to be a comfort to us as we come nearer the end of this earthly life or as we, in God's providence, have to put those who we love into His hands as we rest them in the graves until Christ returns and raises them up again. But Jesus' last prayer for you is that you would be with Him where He's going to see His glory To see the risen and exalted Savior seated at the right hand of God. To see with your own eyes, as Job says, with my own eyes I will see my Redeemer. With your own eyes to see the one that John saw in Revelation in his vision. He said, I was told, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I turned and looked, and a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And the whole host of heaven fell down and worshiped and said, Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and majesty and dominion, for you were slain. And by your blood, you purchase people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's you and me. And Christ was exalted to the right hand and was worthy to take the scroll and sat down at the right hand of power because of his resurrection, and accomplished work which he was sent to do for you and for me, putting to death our sin and removing God's wrath from us and removing from us the penalty that we deserve. And his prayer is that his work on the cross would be accomplished for sinners so you and I could stare at him for eternity. Just to look at Christ. to see his wounds, to be reminded what he suffered for our sin and what he freely offers for our forgiveness. And his prayer to the Father, the very last thing he says is this, Father, it's my will that they be with me in glory. Imagine, imagine what love Christ Christ must have for us to pray on the eve of his crucifixion, not strengthen me, not give me greater courage, not Lord, Father, help this, be quick. He says, Father, I'm going through this for them. Give them to me forever. Do you know that that's how Christ feels about you? That Jesus, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in, in His incarnate personhood, wills for you to be with Him forever. Now, in the midst of dark trials, like the psalmist we cry out, How long, O Lord, why are you so far away from me? It feels like you're not here. It feels like I'm all alone. My life is falling apart. My heart is broken. My shoulders are worn down. I just feel heavy and defeated. Where are you, God? This wouldn't be a bad verse to memorize, would it? To remember that in the midst of that, your great high priest who ever lives to intercede for you is still praying this prayer. Father, don't forget about him. Don't forget about her. It's my will that they come here to be with me, to see me in all my glory, that I can share with them the glory that I've shared with you from before eternity began. Don't forget them. We're not far away. We're never far away. Jesus is always praying for you to come home to him, to be kept by the Father, set apart from the world, and brought to glory when this earthly life comes to an end what love Jesus has for us, what determination in his prayer to see us strengthened, to see us encouraged, to see us comforted, to see us sanctified by his truth. And so he prays to the Father towards that end. Now, if God is so benevolent and so loving and kind to incline his ears to hear the lisping, stammering, prayers of sinners like me and like you how much more do you think he hears the perfect prayer of his only begotten son whom he loves he hears him perfectly doesn't he and he answers every one of jesus prayers because he always prays according to the father's will my food he says in john 4 is to do the will of my father in heaven So if this is Christ's prayer for you, what does that mean to you, Christian? It means God will do it. God will do it for you because of his love for his son. Don't ever fear that you can be lost. Christ prays that you'd be kept. Don't ever fear that your sin will get such a hold of you that you can't be set apart for God's use. Christ's prayers that his word would have its effect in your heart to remove you from here and set you over here sanctified. And don't ever fear that when this life comes to an end, there's some unknown thing on the other side of your closed eyes. You know what's on the other side of those closed eyes? Jesus. Jesus' face his glory, which he desires to share with you for all eternity. <laughs> Who could come up with this stuff? What sort of God, what sort of God would choose to love people like us, like that? Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would encourage our hearts by these prayers of our Savior. And we take great solace in knowing that you will answer all of them according to your will, according to your steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.